Welcome to the Broken Pie Jar Podcast, episode 131. I'm your host, Eric Moore, and this week, finally, after a long absence, is my long-lost, semi-permanent co-host, CEO, and founder of Zega Financial, Jay Pastorcelli. Jay, how are you doing today? Good, Derek. Glad to be back. Sorry for my uh, my hiatus. Yeah, we had a couple people said, you know, is Jay okay? Where where is he? I said he's just fine. He just uh, I did some some solo episodes. I had some couple guests on, but you're, you're back today. So um, I'm, I'm glad to be back, and of course, you are fine, just fine without me. <laughs> All right, so. This should be a good episode. I, I think one of the things, you know, we've been getting a lot of questions from not only advisors, we, we know their clients are asking, our clients are asking, right? And markets at all-time highs, we have COVID out there, inflation talk, a lot of talk about the, the Fed. And so this will kind of be, we're going to touch on markets, earnings, inflation, COVID, and we're going to fill in a lot of the blanks here. And, and some of this will be you and I taking opposite sides on it for the sake of discussion. But let's start with all-time highs. And we know anytime the market's at all-time highs, we always get people that say, is it time to sell? Should I wait? But Jay, and, and you've covered this before. We've, we've talked, uh, I'll link to another episode. We really just spent the whole episode on this. But I think it's worth repeating your data at all-time highs and what you've been seeing and reading and, and hearing. Yeah. And and you know the, the standard data that we've always uh, shared is that you know, it's not unusual for the market to be at or near all-time highs. Thirty-six uh, percent of the time, the market is within three percent of an all-time high. So that means, you know, mo- uh, there's a good chance you're close to an all-time high. It's not rare, right? And and the challenge that I think people run into is that, you know, we all hear the basics of how to invest in the market, which is buy low, sell high. So why would you buy when it's at an all-time high, right? Because it's the highest it's ever been. But the answer is, that's not unusual. It could keep going higher. And this year is a perfect example of how the market could continue to go higher. You know, we hit an all-time high, I think, right after uh, the election in November of 2020, and we haven't looked back. And I think the market is probably as of, you know, uh, yesterday, which is Wednesday, the 25th of August, uh, you know, we're probably up 23, 24% from that November high. And so if you were, you know, if you had hesitated in entering into the market at that time, you've missed out on, you know, large gains. And so, we, you know, we try to tell people, don't worry, markets are uh, by their very nature designed to, you know, eventually get back to all time highs uh, just for all the dynamics of things like inflation and population growth and the way that the indexes are managed, you know, they generally will push higher. We've talked about that a lot. Um, but this year so far, and we're really, you know, finishing up August here, this is happening on the early side. We've had a lot of record record highs this year, Derek, right? I think Wednesday was the 50th all-time high we had in the calendar year of 2021. And, you know, 50 is kind of a random uh, number, uh, but if you look back uh, in history, it has happened. It has happened, I think, seven other times where a market had 50 plus new all time highs within a single calendar year. The most recent was 2017, where the market had 62 all time highs during that year. Um, market was up, you know, nicely that year. Obviously, that was a, a year of very, very low volatility. Actually, feels very much 
like that so far this year uh, as well. Um, uh, I uh, correct me if I'm wrong. When did the uh, when did the the yield curve flatten? Was that starting to show itself in 2017? The last time it flattened, or maybe that was 19. I could be off by a couple of years on that one. But um, my 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 point is that this slow and smooth, you know, up and to the right movement on the chart for our market this year, while it is uh, you know not uncommon, we are kind of passing this uh, idea that, hey, 50 times in a year is, you know, quite a bit, quite a bit for that to happen. It's only happened seven other times. Jay, I mean, I think one of the things too is, and by the way, you think about there is some technical analysis folks that wait for new highs, you know, buy high and sell higher as opposed to buy low and sell high. And I think not always when a market makes new highs or that many new highs, doesn't mean the market goes down. I think you've been some of the things you've been seeing, there's some interesting data, right? Yeah. And, and um, you know, when you look at, uh, say, the next year after these seven times when the market has made a new high, you know, what has it done the following year? You know, I know that's that's still months away for, for us uh, at this point. But, you know, the markets typically have kind of, they flatten out the following year. There are still some record highs in those years. For example, in 2017, there still were about uh, uh, sorry, after 2017 and 2018, there still were about 20 all-time highs after that was uh, after 2017 was over. But some of us may remember the fourth quarter of 2018 was kind of nasty, right? We had a 20% sell-off uh, going all the way to the <laughs> to a couple of days after Christmas, uh, you know, in that fourth quarter. So it doesn't, you know, guarantee what the whole year is going to do next, but it also doesn't mean it's it's over. So, um, you know, all of those things that uh, um, that we'll say here is that, you know, as the, the market's pressing new highs, isn't uncommon. This year's having quite a bit of a lot of them. You know, as we pass 50, we're probably going to have a handful more. It probably also means we're going to have a few more all-time highs next year. So what does that mean? I mean, that's sweet. You know, the simple thing is, hey, the, probably, you know, history tells us that probably there will be higher highs at some point next year. Right. So buying today. It's not absolutely the worst thing, but of course, there's a lot of other factors that we're going to talk about on the podcast here that uh, uh, that that would make you that would that might give you pause about buying uh, uh, at all time highs. The other thing, Derek, I know you, you and I talked about it. I don't know if you want to talk about kind of the thing that's driving this, and and, and if you want to run right into earnings here is kind of the the surprise that the market is experiencing right now, or did you want to hit on anything else on the all time high part? Yeah, as it's. Transitioning to earnings, I think it's also worth saying that, you know, I'll link to another podcast where Jay and I discussed ad nauseum. Ad nauseum seems like a bad term. And in a really, we, we discussed in depth sort of the case for hedging and why you stay hedged. And it's why, you know, Jay and I don't try necessarily predict the markets and time the markets, you know, it's buy and hedge. And so, hey, if the market keeps going up, great, you participate. But if it materially sells off, then okay, you got a, you got a floor in there. But yeah, Jay, earnings is... I mean, I remember uh, you and I were messaging back and forth. I think it was actually on a Saturday. And it was, might have been March or April of 2020. And all of the earnings estimates were just dire. And, you know, to, to kind of frame a little bit, the earnings for the S&P were $139.76 in 2020. Uh, that's, you know, you think about like a stock of the uh, earnings per share. Well, if you aggregate all the, the companies together on the S&P and look at their aggregate earnings, you can come up with that. 
Um, but Jay, that, I mean, it's, I remember you and I were looking at earnings estimates from, from, you know, Goldman, Bank of America, Deutsche Bank. And weren't they like for 21 saying, you know, anywhere from 130 to 160 at one point? I, I feel like it was really low, right? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, I don't know if anybody was even projecting to beat the 2019 earnings in 2021, right? 2019, I think it was more like what, a buck, 160, 162. Um, That's right. And so, um, so I don't, I don't think very many were even thinking we were going to fully recover in 2021 and even have the earnings level that 2019 experienced, right? So that, um, you're, you're right. The estimates were, were, were low to say the least. I mean, isn't this, I always say, and we'll get to the bond market inflation in a second. I've got plenty to say on that front, but you know, I, I always, uh, am, am saying, look, I mean, the, the bond market is sort of telling you the story of inflation. Like the bond market is smarter than, than the experts. Jay, it's, it's in a weird way. I mean, if anybody would have said when the market was at 2,400 back in, uh, you know, March of 20, Hey, you're going to be at 4,500 in, a little under a year and a half. People would have said we were crazy, right? But maybe. Well, that's the thing, right? I mean, and by the way, we were not making that call either, although we did think it was the time to rotate into stocks. But uh, we, we were not making that call either. This has been, a, you know, obviously a strong, uh, strong recovery and a strong market. And um, I think it's fueled by the two things that drive markets, right? Corporate earnings and interest rates. And we're going to talk about both of those things uh, here, but just to maybe round out the uh, uh, a little bit about the earnings topic, you know, earnings are used to assess if the market is expensive or not, right? If the price of the market has kind of outpaced what the earnings of the market are, we know uh, this. You know, earnings per share is a very common fundamental data point that uh, that is used. That that is also applied to the S and P five hundred in general as well. Um, I, Derek, you, you, you like talking about, uh, earnings on the S and P so I don't want to steal any, any, any fire from you there, but you know, when, when people were looking at the recovery of the stock market in advance of starting to see the strong earnings that we've actually realized, people thought we were, the market was way ahead of its skis, uh, even going into the election. I know there's a little pullback going into the election and then obviously coming out of the election when we hit another all time high, you know, people, there was just a lot of feeling that, uh, this earnings are never going to be able to keep up with the price of the market, but it turns out so far it's looking pretty strong, right? So I'll pass the rest of that point to you. So maybe the market was right all along. Maybe people said the market's crazy overvalued. There's no way it should be this high when earnings estimates were lower. And, you know, just to give you a, a little color on earnings estimates, uh, we've got actual for Q1, we have estimates for the, the other quarters, but the, the consensus estimates are, you know, about Two hundred one and a half dollars uh, on the S and P in twenty one, just under two twenty in in twenty twenty two, and two thirty six sixty in uh, twenty three. I mean, I, I twenty three is sort of new to have estimates, but I mean, like we were talking about, I mean, the market apparently got it right. Uh, I don't know, you know, we don't know about the level, um, but certainly, I mean. Those estimates were way low, as it turns out. I mean, earnings have, have been good. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think I think it's one of those cases where people have to remember that estimates are estimates, right? Big capital E, it's an estimate. And they get changed all the time. They get revised. These can get revised down. 
Uh, what is interesting, though, Jay, with earnings, of course, you know the way that you can grow your earnings per share, you can increase revenues, you can increase your margins, you can buy back stock. And by the way, to buy back stock, companies have to have cash. Unfortunately, you know, at the bottom of markets, like in 2008, you would have thought, well, companies would have been buying back their stock hand over fist. They didn't have the cash back then. But Jay, the other thing that's interesting with, with margins is they've been increasing as well. I mean, that, that's kind of a strong thing for earnings. Yeah, uh, I think that's definitely the, uh, part of it that's pushing it. But we 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 obviously have to um, come to the uh, equilibrium of you know the workforce, which is definitely different now than it, than it was in 2019. Uh, whether it's the work from home or people are getting paid to not work yet, you know, all of those things matter when it comes to the margins of a, a of a company. But you know, there's also a lot of money out there, which is also helping to push up uh, revenue, right? People will spend if they have money in their pocket. I mean, I'm not making that up. That's not a dig on people in general, but people will. People will have higher confidence. It's why we track things like consumer confidence. Um, I, you know, my, my, my son is taking uh, uh, an economics class. And, you know, one of the first things that the teacher asked his class was, all right, if you had $100 in your, in your hand, what are you going to spend it on? Right. And almost everybody decided to uh, <laughs> to spend all of it and whatever they, they were buying. Right. Whatever juniors in high school are buying. I, I was I was proud of uh, uh, of Xander. He did decide to do a little investing with it, but he spent most of it. Yeah. But the point is, as people have, you know, cash in their hands, they're going to spend it. So you've got revenue, which is fine, right? The revenue of companies, people are spending money and you, you know, potentially have a lower margin due to, you know, maybe a more affordable workforce. Yeah, that's probably a good point, time to transition to inflation. And Jay, I'm going to flip it. I'm going to let you host this portion of it. Um, I didn't tell you I was going to do that, but you're the host now. What do you want to ask me about inflation and the Fed? So Derek, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the difference between transitory and, you know, embedded long-term inflation. Tell me a little bit about, you know, your your perspective on, you know, what we're going through now, which is obviously an elevated level. Do you think it it's over this year, next year, or do we kind of stay at this, you know, 5% rate for a while? It's transitory with two big caveats, which I'll explain after I make the first point. There are two types of inflation. There's things that are, and I like to watch what's called the flexible CPI and the sticky CPI. It's just things that prices are more apt to move um, and things that aren't more apt to move. A good example of recency that we've seen in the numbers is, of course, rental car prices year over year. We've seen hotel or travel. We've seen food away from home, you know, things that were affected by the, the shutdowns. Thus far, we haven't seen in the sticky stuff, the more core things, we haven't seen uh, big increases there. We did see that in the late 1970s. So thus far on that front, it's proving to be a little bit transitory. The other thing is Europe is not having the same, uh, I don't want to say explosion in, in, uh, in growth of inflation, but they're simply not yet. Now they've had a little bit more of a sustained closure. There, there's a couple things here, though. So I would say thus far, it, it seems like it's transitory. And it also seems like a lot of the price increases go back to the prices of container shipping, Shanghai to, to LA, Shanghai to Rotterdam, which, of course, is in the Netherlands. 
Those recently made another all-time high. It was $1,500 for a container. Now it's over 13000 in some cases. So the caveat is includes the container shipping. The other caveat, though, Jay, and you mentioned it, it gets back to, to Xander's economics class, and it's, it's supply and demand. And the, the, one of the schools of thought is uh, this was a demand problem. And to help that or to fix that, what do you do? You do stimulus. You send people checks. And I've heard economists of, of recent you know, talks say, look, what if this was a supply side thing? And it plays into the container shipping issues and the, the delay in semiconductors. If it's a supply side shock, throwing money on the fire or, or gasoline on the fire would be the exact not thing to do because it would prove to, to really jump inflation. Those are the two caveats, Jay. I think I think the supply side thing is where I was going to, you know, kind of push back on you a little bit. You've obviously uh, uh, touched on it there between the chips and your shipping containers, and even the delay for for shipping uh, for get to get things. I mean, it's just you know we 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 saw a little bit of that in the lumber market, right? Uh, and that has kind of come back to earth. But it feels like if this really is a supply issue. You know, you're right. I like that you said throwing money on the fire because that's all you're really doing. Right. <laughs> you're just giving people more money to have a higher demand, but you haven't really increased uh, the supply all that much. Right. And that's that's the the counterpoint I would bring up, uh, you know, against the transitory is that, you know, how long is transitory or is it just is it built in and it's just going to cost more to get a, you know, to get a dishwasher or to get a refrigerator? No, I, I think that's important. The, the time is what's unknown. I mean, it's much like. Uh, you know, the markets and interest rates. I mean, in the end, we really don't know. But I, the one thing uh, I saw some data, and if you looked at savings rates, savings rates have come back down to you know, more along the, the long-term trend line. They were much higher. And so that does say that maybe uh, people's available discretionary funds are being drawn down. So maybe that's, that's a situation that uh, would say demand uh, would ease, thus easing the supply side. Uh, although the container shipping thing is, that's still a mess uh, for sure. Yeah. No, we, 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 I know you uh, always remind us of the, that kind of fundamental problem in, uh, in the supply chain with, with container uh, costs. All right. I'm going to, let me throw another one at you there. So in, in scenarios where, you know, the, 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 the inflation, stays right it sticks a little longer you know transitory at this point i don't think anybody thinks it'll inflation will be done by 2021 yet but let's say you know it sticks a little longer why why does the fed decide to move interest rates when there's an inflation risk well it's the idea is that if you raise rates you take away sort of the the, the demand side the fed's in a little bit of a, a box and you know People much smarter than me have, have opined on this. But there's some interesting things that are going on with the Fed right now. Number one is there's such demand for treasuries, uh, so much so that the very short end of the, the U.S. Treasury, the, the bill market, went negative for a few days. And what the Fed did was they entered the reverse repo market. It's, I did an episode on that. I'll certainly link to it. But that's basically they exchanged their treasuries on their balance sheet 
for cash and financial institutions that have money mar- you know, funds and money markets and, and banks and such. And they set a floor of 0.05% in the reverse repo market. So in a weird way, they've already tightened. Uh, and then the second thing is they could stop the asset purchases. This, is, this has a lot of debate. Historically, there's, when they announce they're going to taper, rates spike a little bit, but then they actually go down over time. And I mentioned that demand for treasuries. Uh, I'm not sure uh, if that would have as big of an impact or a shock as people think. But Jay, to get back to your question before I threw in all the other things uh, that you didn't ask me about. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you want to raise rates because you want you feel like demand is too much and demand is causing uh you know, rate, interest rates or inflation to go up. Too much, too many dollars chasing too few goods. Yeah, would you say it puts a stress on the supply chain, right, as demand is too high? I think so. But in this case, Jay, I'm not sure that it was all about rates. Uh, I think this, the fiscal policy in this case certainly had a much bigger, you know, effect on things. Well, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with that at all. I think I was I wanted to lead you a little bit down the path to, you know, yes, the they're going to try to slow demand down by raising rates. But if the supply problem is temporary, then it might be a mistake to slow down demand too much in the first place. Right. I think that's probably why they are trying to let this kind of work itself out a little bit and see if the supply chain can catch up. Right. Can we get containers back down to heck under 3000, right down from your 15,000, you know, like, will that, will that iron itself out? Do we come to an equilibrium of, uh, you know, living with, you know, this, all the things that could cause supply problems, right? Whether it's, uh, the virus, the additional money that's out in the market. We didn't talk too much about the potential impact of COVID here and what does it mean to live with it going forward? But, uh, I, you know, I, I think there's probably, you know, that argument that I would make, I think you're making on the side that it's transitory. It's, it's, the Fed should probably wait longer rather than uh, uh, than act sooner, because if this can work itself out, you don't want to stop the demand. That That's pretty strong. You brought up uh, the lumber market. And I think that's a really good example, because number one is I don't believe that, you know, lumber mostly comes from Canada, at least to the U.S. Uh, and some of the the upper Pacific Northwest. I don't pretend to know. I thought you were going to say lumber comes from trees. No. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah, we got yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> Sorry. But what, what happened in that market, and it's actually a, a really good example, is, you know, those, a, a lot of the inventory. So imagine you're a business owner, and it doesn't matter. It could be the gap selling jeans. It could be lumber. But, you know, February, March, April comes, and you're like, man, this is going to be really bad for the next couple of years. I got to get rid of all my inventory. And guess what? The exact opposite happened. People started ordering stuff. You know, it's like what you thought would happen wasn't. So what has to happen? You know, inventory uh, levels are, I, I, I don't have the chart in front of me, but it's like decade, multiple decade lows of, of how much stuff a store has in the, in, the, in the back, you know, in the stock, right? So I think that's, that's another, I, I'm glad you brought up the lumber market because that is ease now because those mills have come back online and, and suppliers come back and things like that. But I think that's a good point to make. And it goes back to, you know, economics 101, right? Yep. Yep. You can fix the supply side. You'll, you'll meet the demand side of things, right? And if this is, as you said, a demand driven versus a supply driven, you know, inflation environment, I actually couldn't tell which side of that you're on. I think you were on the demand side 
as the uh, the thing that's causing the the temporary inflation rise. I think it's, uh, but I I'm open to the fact that maybe a lot of people have this wrong, and it is a supply side, and inflation is going to be as as the if the government does more and more you know stimulus and things like that, that we could get inflation that uh, that continues higher. Um, we'll see. I'll let you know in a year or two, Jay. How's that? Fair enough. I'm 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 sure you won't have to let me know, but I'll I'll be with you. That's good. We'll be watching it together. <laughs> let, well, let, me, let me. How'd I do as host? Did I do? Yeah, all right you, for you, you did there? good. I, I kind of threw that on you. So let's let's transition now to. By the way, you brought up a point. Um, so I want to bring something up that uh, a bunch those of us on the investment committee were talking about at Zega uh, this morning, and that was Bullard made some comments, and it's worth noting that uh, if anybody isn't up to date on their Fed. Uh, mechanics, uh, the Fed chair and the New York Fed president, those are permanent members of the, uh, the FOMC voting committee, the voting members. And the other Fed presidents, they rotate uh, depending upon the year. So Bullard uh, from the St. Louis Fed, he is not a voting member for 2021. But he actually brought up an interesting thing, which I hadn't heard. Jay, did he express concern about housing prices? He did. He did. As he was talking about inflation, and, and I got to tell you, it was the most hawkish comments I've heard uh, out of anybody from the Fed. Not a voting member, we know, but still, he's, he's, he's there, right? He, he definitely was, he was ready, right? He was out there and saying, listen, it's it's time to start, you know, the tapering and, and the easing is over. And one of the things he cited was the housing market. So this was the morning of uh, August, 25th, uh, August 26th. That's today when we're recording this. But he was uh, he was. He said, "There's a problem with the housing market uh, and the boom and how expensive real estate has gotten." And you know, I'm. I'm. It's the first time I've heard it too that it's a, a problem. By the way, I think it's a problem they created. Actually, well, yeah. I mean, it's. I mean, here's some some numbers, and and this goes to your point, Jay. Guess what? The lower rates are, the more people can afford. How much more? Well, let me let me just show you something. The median home price in 2000 was 172,900. Median means, you know, you get rid of Bill Gates's mansions, you get rid of, you know, but it's a good. And then the median recently was 374,900. Now that seems like a lot. That's 216.8%. That's over uh, you know, 20 and a half years, right? If I'm doing my math right. So then I looked back and I said, "Okay, well, Mortgage rates, uh, and I think mortgage rates are under three for conventional mortgages. But you know, I use a three point two five mortgage rate on three hundred seventy four thousand nine hundred is sixteen hundred thirty one dollars a month, principal and interest. And then I went back and I looked and I said, what was the interest rate? The average interest rate. I of course search Google and it says eight point two five percent with one point, which means you pay a point. So anyway, I did eight. And that was back in, in 2000. 2000, yeah. right. So 8.25% on hundred on the 172K and change is 1300 And so what's interesting is the adjusting for rates, the payment went up 25%. At the same time, housing went up 216% in the same period, just using median to median, okay? Those statisticians out there might, might wreck my analysis and say I didn't do it right. But that's the way I did it. So yeah, Jay. I mean, keeping rates low and and obviously you can afford more house. It because it's about the payment. 
Yeah, it, it is about the payment. And and I don't know if this is a bad thing or a good thing, but you know, when people think about buying a house, it's not, oh, how much of a debt am I willing to carry? It's how much can I f- afford each month? And when the bank even evaluates your ability to pay your loan, it's, well, what's your, uh, you know, what's your, your, your equity rate, right? Like what, how much are you going to be able to pay each month? And that's what they decide whether they're going to give you the loan or not, not how much the size of your, you know, how large the debt is on the house. And yeah, you're absolutely right. If you could get a bigger house and pay the same amount of money, most people make that decision regardless of the size of the loan that they end up carrying. Speaking about the size of the house too, and this may be transitory, maybe not. Uh, a good example is I, I talked to a young couple uh, last week and they were looking at buying the first house. And one of the conditions they had to have, because both of them may have to work from home or are working from home, is they need more space. So initially you say, well, you know, a starter home or, or a home, you know, maybe you need X number of bedrooms, maybe you need an extra room here or there. But a lot of people now need more space. So that is a factor for sure, I think, in this, this whole thing. Absolutely. I think it's, it's part of the exodus out of the larger cities, right? It's, it's why a lot of people are moving out and uh, probably why, I don't know if that's why they're picking Florida. Maybe there's other reasons. But my state is growing, you know, dramatically um, uh, just during this COVID period, right? And I think you're right. People need a larger house, Derek, uh, if, they're, if this whole work at home dynamic is going to go on. And I think a lot of people got really used to it. Um, it will, like I said, we have to find our equilibrium. There will be a piece of everybody's work where, you know, working from home a day or two, four days, who knows what that number is going to be is going to matter. And people will want their own office space. You're just not doing it for the kitchen table, you know, once a month now. Let's transition to COVID and the, I'll frame the discussion this way. We think about COVID as the markets and the economy. Uh, neither of us are epidemiologists, although I did watch uh, the show ER uh, when it was on a long time ago, uh, but certainly doesn't qualify us. You know, COVID's interesting. And I, and I think maybe the discussion is, you know, there's, there's obviously the vaccines available now. Um, there are, you know, we, we hear about the Delta variant, the political side of it, you know, shutdowns, not shutdowns, Australia shutting down, arresting Sounds like they're arresting people if they go outside. So, Jay, on on COVID, I think it's the fear isn't as much as it was in March of twenty. I think we'd agree on that. But we're give us your thoughts on this, and I'll I'll chime in. Yeah, so you're right uh, because there was still there's plenty of unknown, but there was even more of an unknown factor in March of 2020. I remember when, you know, we wouldn't go to the grocery store, we would have the food delivered. And then we, you know, we'd spray the bag down with Lysol before we'd even touch it and bring it in the house four hours later. Right. Um, so you're right. The fear is a little less, but you, let's, let's, let's keep it with the markets because I think we all know the human side of this is, is awful. Uh, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, probably a lot of examples we could call out that would, would cause additional fear. So I'll go back to the two things that I always say drive the markets, corporate earnings and interest rates. We've touched on both of them. Um, and so the, the things that I, you know, when I look at uh, the Delta variant, and even if this Lambda variant turns out to be more deadly, um, the things that I will look at is, you know, will it stop people from generating economic activity? And the answer is probably in the leisure and travel space, but we're all back to work, right? The odds of America, you know, doing mandated shutdowns are very, very low. 
uh, at this point. I know other countries have uh, have gone back to that. We have not. I don't think there's an appetite in America for that. So I think from an economic standpoint, with the exception of certain uh, sectors, I don't think you'll see a slowdown in, uh, uh, in corporate earnings and revenue. When I think about interest rates uh, as the other factor of this, you know, if there is, you know, the, the Fed decides to keep rates lower for longer because they're concerned about economic activity uh, being lower, which is why they would, again, spur demand and try to create more uh, uh, activity within the economy. Um, I, I think they probably do not view this uh, as a thing that will slow down economic activity, which means they probably lean towards getting, you know, helping to push rates up a little bit, as they've said. So, you know, I I don't think from a market perspective, it actually matters all that much with the exception of a few uh, uh, sectors, segments within the economy. And I, it's, I, you know, I feel like I'm talking out of the other side of my face with this because, uh, you know, I know a lot of people in the medical space and, you know, I just know somebody that just passed who was vaccinated, right? And they still died from the disease. So, you know, I know that there's, you know, there's plenty of fear out there with this, but when you think about, you know, if you could take that noise out and boil it down to the things that matter to the markets, um, will it hurt earnings? Will it, you know, change interest rates? I don't think there's any surprises out there with this variant. I think we have headline risk and it's, it, headline risk is one of those interesting things where you remember when Greece was uh, going to default and that was the headline risk and, and, you know, CNBC would have a reporter in Greece. Well, that stopped mattering, though the underlying issues still remained. And it's just like oil prices. Sometimes high oil prices or low prices matter. Sometimes they don't. I do think there's headline risk. There, but those headlines, so you're right, but those are, those are you know, one day moves in the market typically, right? And stuff that we actually like to take advantage of, right, with some of our more active strategies. But you're, you're right. I think headline risk always exists. There's the emotional reaction in the market. But, you know, we've seen every COVID fear bought within a day or two. Every COVID scare was bought right up. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And plus the market's at all-time highs at the same time. And you would think, okay, you know, we've, I've been watching, uh, you know, some of the data out of Israel and Iceland. Those are good com- uh, companies, countries to watch. Gibraltar would be the other one, although it's very small. Um, hopefully, if we have a Gibraltar listener, you know, send me an email. I'll send you a book. How's that? I want a Gibraltar listener. So we're doing very good in Iceland, apparently, Jay. But back, back to my point, I mean, you know, the... These are ones like, you know, really high percent that are vaccinated. And a lot of those countries vaccinated with, with one, uh, one vaccine, one of the brands, right? And, you know, some of the data out of Israel is showing that um, at least, you know, it's been reported uh, that maybe there's some waning um, effectiveness of them and, and the need for another one. Uh, we are seeing, at least in, in the numbers that I read, uh, people who have been vaccinated that, that are in the hospital. And, and yet the market's at all-time highs. And I, I think that sort of supports that maybe the market has digested all of this. You know, the market doesn't like unknowns. Maybe it's it's now comfortable with the known unknown, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah. I mean, are you going to cancel your Netflix subscription if, uh, if you know, we have, you know, let's say a, a lower uh, efficiency rate of uh, uh, efficacy of the vaccines? No. Are you going to change what you're eating? No. Uh, again, you're probably just not going to travel as much, right? But when you think about where you spend your money today, 
you know, you're going to have the opportunity to continue to spend the money just like you do today. I think one of the things um, I didn't have it necessarily on our, our core list of topics, but I think it's worth just talking about the 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 wall of worry. And one of the, the things that's out there right now is Afghanistan. But Jay, you and I both know that uh, we've been in the markets a long time now, which number one means we're getting older. Number two means we've at least the trade off is we have a lot of experience. You know, I remember when uh, there was the Russian coup in in the 90s, you know, the markets pulled back. Uh, North Korea for a while, that was going to cause, uh, obviously, Iraq 1, Iraq 2, 9-11. Um, there's always sort of a wall of worry. Afghanistan is one of those things. I'm not sure that the, there's been much of a, a market reaction on that yet. And and I'll, I'll you said, did the preface on COVID. You know, the, the humanitarian side of this or any other, the, the politics, uh, we'll leave that for other people to discuss. But I, I don't think this is a market risk per se. No, nope. uh, I mean, you could probably do three degrees of separation so that it could impact the market. I mean, uh, there was headline reaction today, this morning, right? A few bombs went off in Kabul today. Uh, uh, so this is Thursday morning I'm talking about. Uh, and the market immediately reacted. But it, it it kind of found a bottom and and leveled out here. And it's one of those things that you could get headline risk. You're absolutely right. But is it going to affect interest rates? Is it going to affect corporate earnings? Um, if, if you do have, you know, a new terrorist state that has been created there in Afghanistan, then, okay, so, you know, you want to be in the defense sector because America is probably going to make more bombs and missiles, right? So, you know, there's, I don't, I don't think, I'm with you, Derek. I, even though that's it's fearful and it's and it seems like a scary uh, scenario, you know, connecting it to the markets is it's going to take a couple degrees of connection, right, to to get to the point where it would affect things like corporate earnings. Nine Eleven was one where it was obvious right away how it was going to affect uh, our country, right, and our country's earnings. And I think the market reacted appropriately. But um, this one, I, yeah, I mean, it's 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 global. It's interesting globally, but I don't think in the near term this has any effect on the markets. You know, you mentioned travel, and and that's a good uh, example. And same thing with nine eleven. I mean, I remember being on a plane shortly after that, and I think the plane held, I don't know, one hundred and eighty people, and there maybe was nineteen people on the plane. You know, so that that type of thing. And, and our life changed, yes. right? Like think yeah. about TSA, like pre, you know, going through security and, you know, the year 2000 was very different than the year 2002. Yeah. Or even remember if, if remember this Jay, if you didn't have a ticket, you could go to the gate. You had yeah, to go through security. Go to remember that? Yeah. Yeah, no <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. See your parents off where they're going. Yeah, sure. That's right. Now, now that. you gotta wait outside. And, you know, listen, I, I think we probably see a long-term change in the way we live from COVID, right? I'm sorry to get back on that one, but just, you know, some things can have a large impact, a, a, a changing impact. Again, that's the whole equilibrium thing I was talking about, but I don't, you know, I don't think we're going to have this. Uh, I think Afghanistan is interesting, you know, but not market-wise. I want to get back to volatility and rates a, a little bit. You know, one, one thing um, on rates I do wonder sometimes if because of the the debt held by the public, which is uh, approaching $22 trillion, if there's uh, – I'm not going to say that the, there's going to be political pressure on the Fed, but I do think it's in the best interest of not only the U.S. government, but a lot of governments around the world for interest rates to be low. I mean, to give you an example, 
the average uh, interest rate, annual interest rate paid on treasuries, of course, when we take on debt as a country, we issue treasuries, uh, you know, at, at 22 trillion at 2%, that's like 440 billion. But on 22 trillion, you know, if, if let's say rates were to uh, triple, and I'm certainly not saying rates are going to do that, you know, that's, uh, what does that go to? At 0.06, I got my calculator, that's 1.3 trillion. That's more than the defense budget or, or Medicaid and Social Security and Medicare, right? So I don't know. I, it's, uh, it's just something I think to, to think about. There's definitely an incentive. And if economics, and as your son will find out, incentives matter. So I don't know if you have any comment on that before I transition to volatility, but. Uh, you know, I, the only other thing I'd say, so yes, of course, the, you know, we're, our government is incented to keep interest rates low just from a budgetary uh, uh, perspective. Um, I, I will, um, so I, I, would, I would agree with you on that. Uh, the only other thing I would bring up when it comes to rates uh, with regard to the markets before we talk about volatility is, um, you know, low rates push you into more aggressive assets like stocks, right? When you and I allocate for people uh, and try to build a plan and we have a growth plan for them, building a basket of stocks just really doesn't do it. I'm sorry, a basket of bonds just really doesn't do it anymore. So you're forced into more uh, uh, you know, growth oriented asset classes like stocks. And so, you know, we didn't connect those dots for everybody, but the lower rates, you know, tend to kind of push market prices up, which is why I brought up that that actually matters to the market. So sorry, my last point on interest rates was just that. Yeah. And connect another dot on that. And it, it's sort of obvious. Maybe we missed talking about it. Guess what? Part of uh, people who do intrinsic valuation of companies, of individual companies and look at future cash flows and decide what, you know, a fair value is. You know, I'm talking about the value investors here. Guess what? They discount future cash flows down by some rate of interest, the discount rate uh, or some other rate. And guess what? Lower rates means future cash flows are worth more. So there's another dot, Jay, that we can connect for sure. Sure, 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 sure. Are you going to jump to volatility real quick? Yeah. So volatility... One of the things, I don't have the chart in front of us, but I remember you and I were, were talking about a, a graph that we saw. I think this was one of the longest periods, if not the longest, for volatility to come down from a peak back down to its long run average. So uh, we've seen really an extended stretch of volatility. Uh, volatility is, you know, we, we've, I mean, it went down a little bit, but Jay, it's, it's sort of stayed at the higher end, right? Uh, yes, yes. Volatility has been um, uh, definitely, especially considering the lack of any, you know, five percent moves and how many brand new, you know, all time highs we've uh, experienced this year. The volatility is definitely higher than what historically we would have expected in this kind of environment. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I mean, I think it was. It wasn't shocking or surprising, that's the better word, that it took so long to come down because guess what? We're in the middle of COVID and, you know, un uncertainty and things like that. Um, no, I, I don't think it's surprising. I think what was surprising, Jay, was back in 2017, right? Was that the year with when, when the VIX went under 10 at one point? Is it 17? Yeah. Yep, yep. It was 17. I mean, basically, uh, everything was ultra cheap when in 2017. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think it's not out of the range uh, from long term. 
but certainly the you know as sellers of volatility we've taken advantage of that uh this run so for sure yeah i i uh i recently put out a note that i thought you know probably the low for a little while on the on the vix is going to be 15 right it may touch it may dip below but generally speaking that seems to be the support level and it's it's because of some of the things like this unknown out there and the emotional reaction to COVID, uh, the fear of the Fed moving uh, due to higher inflation. Uh, I'm going to throw something else out there and we haven't touched on it. And it's probably, uh, uh, it's, it's a new topic. I don't want to open up a can of worms, but you know, the S&P 500 now has a component to it associated with crypto and Bitcoin. When you look at some of the S&P 500 stocks that hold crypto on their balance sheets, um, it is starting to weave its way in. And so a very smart guy on our investment committee said, you know, as long as, you know, Bitcoin and crypto is as volatile as it is, you know, it's going to be hard to see a VIX below 15 anytime soon. So, you know, maybe that's another one of those outside things to, to think about here is, you know, what's keeping volatility from going to that, you know, that 13 number, which, by the way, you and I have done studies on to show the statistical relevance of a 13 VIX and what that means and how it truly does show complacency and calm in the market, uh, those kinds of things. But, you know, the odds of us getting there at this point seem seem low and unlikely. I'm glad you, yeah, crypto is not a bad thing to bring up. You know, we've done a whole episode on that. Of course, I'll link to that where Jay and I discussed that uh, position sizing, potentially, you know, percent that you could hold in a portfolio. But no, I think it is. And, and you know, the thing with crypto is, it's been around for, I mean, Bitcoin's been priced for over 10 years, right? But it's only been within the last, I'd say, five years. Is that fair enough that, that people have been aware of the price? And, uh, you know, look, I mean, it's, it's volatile. And I think you bring up a good point. I don't know what that volatility yet translates into, uh, you know, to a VIX handle. I'm not sure yet. But I think, I think uh, you know, let's say if, if people are either switching to, to cryptos or where they're, they're leveraged and they've got to sell something and they want to keep, you know, that, you know, these, these pieces all go, uh, you know, people sell what they can sell to fund other things. So uh, yeah, I think it's an area to watch for sure. All right, Jay. So, uh, I'm glad you, you were able to make it back on. Uh, hopefully it won't be, uh, you know, another two months before you, you, you come again. It's, uh, uh, you know, by the way, I didn't have you on just so everybody knows, just because a, a guest canceled. Uh, you're not the Tony Randall of, uh, <laughs> I, of, of I wasn't thought, oh, shoot, I need somebody to get on the phone. Right. Yeah. And I think this was a good episode for us to do because people get to hear this is sort of a conversation that we would have on the investment committee. And while we obviously um, we don't make decisions on this stuff, I mean, we're hedged or we're buffered and, and obviously we sell volatility. It's it's a little inside baseball into some of the, the things that we talk about. So if people want to follow, Jay mentioned uh, he puts out notes every once in a while um, and, and different content. I write a lot of content as well, zegafinancial.com. And you can go to In the News and blog. And that's a good place you can put your email in. You can sign up and, and just get notified, uh, You know, usually about twice a week. So that's a good spot and to find out more. So Jay, thanks again for uh, coming on today. Yeah, great to be here, Derek. And uh, maybe uh, uh, next time that we're on, we could play maybe uh, a headline roulette where we could kind of roll, you know, spin the wheel and whatever the headline is, one of us goes challenge the other one to talk about it. I like it. I like it. Let's do that. All right, Jay. Have a good one. Bye-bye. See you, everyone. Bye-bye.